Well, good morning. It is great to have you guys uh, back. I hope you had an awesome Easter celebration with your families. And uh, if you're our guest and you're here, new here today, or maybe you've just been coming back after a few weeks and uh, you don't know me, I'm Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here at Olive Branch. And glad that you'd be joining with us and connecting. And we're doing a different kind of series as we're engaging in a conversation about this, this, these beings called the demons and then the defeat that they had at the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And uh, maybe you're back because you were interested in a little bit more of that, or you're just part of the family. Either way, just glad you're here. But I want to open up this morning as we begin in prayer and just ask God's blessing on the rest of the series and uh, protection as well, because this is uh, not the uh, safest environment to go marching around in, spiritually speaking. So let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, that it gives us the true contours of reality, that it gives us the understanding of our world. Whether it be from the understanding that this world has order and we can discover it in science, or whether this world has the, the beings of the supernatural and the natural and how we can handle and understand that. God, that you give us the knowledge of you and how you work with us so that we may have relationship with you and even into eternity. We just thank you for what you've given to us. We ask that today you might open our hearts and our minds up, that you would be... Um, you would just teach us so we would know how to move from here. Ask for your protection, your guidance as we work through your word and that uh, we might be able to uh, go from here in victory that you have brought through Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my, um, those of you, many of you already know that I have four children and um, my kids have gotten to that age now. They're not typically coming into my room anymore at night and, and, and talking to me, but my son Andrew, he's the youngest. He, he's still kind of a little bit there. He'll, he'll show up every once in a great while, I'll come knock on the door and I've got to go like, oh, what is this? You know, walk out and he comes up to me and he's like, with these big saucer eyes, Daddy. I'm like, oh, what's wrong, big guy? He's like, I'm so scared. I'm like, well, oh, what are you scared of? He's like, oh, I think there's a ghost in my room. You know, that old scenario that happens. You ever had that before? And I lean down and I'm you do what every good dad does. You go, oh, son, it's okay. It's okay. There's no such things as ghosts. There are demons. <laughs> but there are no such things as ghosts. Oh, and just so you know, demons come out during the day too. And so he's just, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm kidding. You don't actually do that to your children. That would be, that'd be bad. But um, I feel like that scenario is a good scenario for how we should converse to our current culture. Actually, interesting is the youngest generation, they're calling them the iGen, Gen Z or whatever. There's a surprising increase where we've never seen it before in, in the belief, not only in, in ghosts and demons, but the paranormal, everything from ESP to witchcraft to, but mainly pre predominantly in hauntings, poltergeists, ghosts, and things like this. Very popular because of YouTube, fascinatingly enough. Um, there's all kinds of stories and different challenges that are passed around dealing with these ghosts. I mean, some of us grew up with the old Bloody Mary thing. This has kind of gone to a new level with all kinds of new different ways of thinking about it and looking into it. And these youngest generation is fascinated and interested. You may be part of that and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, man. I'm, I'm really curious about all these different things out there. And then there's another part of us that we, you may have moved past that in your life. You're not playing those games. You're not thinking about those things. You're not engaging in those, in those activities at all. You understand they can be dangerous and that they're not to be toyed with. Or maybe you're just like, yeah, I just don't believe that that kind of stuff is real. And so, but you're on Facebook and you're doing something different. We've seen an increase in the last few in the last few years, especially since the past election. 
in, in what I would call vitriolic conversations. You guys notice this? Where it just seems like we're at each other's throat as a culture. We are ready to just shove each other, yell at each other, scream at each other, be it over race issues, be it over gun control, be it over economy or who's the president. I mean, we have just got this world and on fire and anger and we are ready to fight, ready to take to the street, ready to shout and scream and cuss at one another and boycott each other, you name it. We've figured out that this is a time of war, not a time of civility for some reason. And as a pastor studying this, I kind of back up and I look at this odd connection. The increase in the belief of the paranormal, the increase in the belief of these things, and the, the idea of that, that another whole part of the generation doesn't believe in it, and yet an increase in the behaviors that they would probably promote the most. And what's interesting to me is I wonder, is there a parallel? Is something going on in our society, our culture? We've ignored the demonic so long that we've ignored the presence of an enemy so long that the unseen enemy is beginning to have his ways. And so I want to stop and back up a bit and ask a question today. Like, you know, as Christians, as a church, as people who are interested in spiritual things, should we not be aware of the presence of these beings and how they act? And what I want to do today is begin to, to argue that we should be. Because if we don't realize their existence, we don't realize what's going on, if we don't take in what we're talking about in this series, we are not prepared to actually engage what's really happening in our society. And I think Paul laid it out right. Why don't you go ahead and open to one of Paul's letters. It's a letter of the Ephesians. And he's writing to a church in a city called Ephesus. His greatest evangelistic success happened in, in Ephesus. He had come to this town and evangelized. It wasn't until this town filled with magical amulets, idols, all kinds of um, spiritual scrolls and spells. And these people were obsessed with these kind of talismans and all of these things. They lived in it. They drank it. They would call upon demons to go curse people. They would call upon demons to bless them. They used spiritual powers constantly in their world. And Paul walks right into this. And this is Ephesus. This is the capital city of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And this is what's going on. He goes in here and he brings a group of people to faith, but they're still practicing these things. And it's after they finally reject it, they burn it all. They walk away and go, we're, we're free of this, that a revival explodes amongst the Ephesians. It's no wonder that the book of Ephesians actually is one of the most detailed uh, conversations we have about the spiritual powers and the spiritual life. And so at the end of the book, after he's explained all this stuff about how to live in families, how to live amongst, with a, like in employment situations, he goes, verse 11, after saying, finally, you know, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Even though Jesus had overcome the devil, he's still scheming, he's still messing around. And then he says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guys, we aren't fighting people, is what he's saying. We've got the target on the wrong place. This isn't about ideologies other people are holding, so we yell and scream and, and, and accuse them and get mad. And notice, and look, the battle is not on a physical plane. The battle is on a spiritual one. The battle is engaging with the supernatural forces, and we ought to then know, what is this horde that is aligned against us? What is going on here so that we can engage 
this spiritual battle at some level. Now we'll get into what the armor is and stuff later in this series. But what I want to do is just take that knowledge that this is a fight. This is a wrestling match, not with other human beings, but with the demonic realm. And so what we need to do is first and foremost, we need to know our demonic enemy rightly. We need to have a good idea what's going on here. To engage an enemy, you ought to have some surveillance and some knowledge about what you're facing so that you can appropriately understand how to engage and deal with this. And so I want to walk you through about four or five different things about the demonic that I want you to take in. The first one is, is to know this. Guys, they really do exist. I can't overemphasize this enough in a culture that has come to say, no, you know, they were just making mistakes. These were just psychological maladies, the psychiatric maladies. We know this now. If you'll just simply give them the right drugs and things, these things go away. And yet, if you talk to psychiatrists and psychologists, they will tell you there's oftentimes something going on that is beyond the psychiatric. It, it, it doesn't match the patterns. It doesn't go in. They're rare, but they come through. And what happens is oftentimes they will, go, they will address this and there, there is indeed a demonic aspect to some of these maladies. We would call it possession or, or demonization, things like that. They exist. They're there. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the, the, the lock. Actually, for me, it's more important that we understand this. There is a question I left us with at the end of last week's sermon, and, and, and that was this one question. If you're going to answer any question before you address any of this stuff, you have to ask, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Because if either he did rise or he didn't. And if he did, all that he taught and all that was surrounding him in his Jewish thinking and the Jewish thought life that was there and all that he proclaimed is therefore true. God endorsed it and said, this is the man. I've brought him back from the dead. He is the leader. Listen to him. He is the son of God. And here's the thing, if we follow Jesus, and he's the risen one from the dead, and he believed in demons, I go with the guy who rose from the dead, probably knows a lot more than I do about the supernatural world. And I go with this one who engaged, in fact, Jesus talked about Satan, he talked about demons, he engaged the demonic. To follow Jesus is to believe these things, and to know this exists. And so, first of all, I just say, you know, solve the resurrection problem. Second, though, is I want you to consider this, that there's a lot of science is based on the accrual of information. We make observations, we build those observations together, and we produce laws because we make observations and experiences when we pull this information. Well, every culture, every language around the globe, regardless of their religious perspective, believes in the demonic. Buddhists believe in evil spirits. And they, they use, their, they use their, um, all their kind of like incense burning and all this stuff to keep those spirits away and at bay and things like this. You also have the, the Muslims. The Muslims believe in demonic spirits. They believe very much in demonic spirits. Jewish people believe in demonic spirits. Christians believe in demonic spirits. Hindus very much believe in the demonic. So do the Wiccans. So do the pagans. I have not yet read of, a, of an actual religious perspective, animistic or otherwise, except for modern secular atheism that does not believe in the demonic. And when you think about it, many of us, that's what we were raised in, a secular ideology that, that while I don't think they ever intend to say, you know, the demons don't exist, it's not something you go listening to at school. I mean, you don't sit down in your classes at school and go, okay, today is our unit about demons. You know, it's not going to happen in your public school system. You try that one out and see how many parents complain. It'll be really interesting. 
And yet that's the kind, so when it's ignored, it kind of becomes the way things are. And we've lived in a society that ignores this subject and pushes the subject aside in some sense in the mainstream world, and it leaves us susceptible. Because we need to know this horde exists, and I mean horde. There's a lot of them. Don't get me wrong. In fact, now I'm gonna I'm gonna say there's not they're not everywhere in the sense that there's a demon of sneezing and a demon of coughing and a demon of diabetes and things like that. No, demons can affect the body. Indeed, if you're demonized, they can have a physical effect. But let's put it this way: that there, there's not a demon for every ailment and every sin human beings do. Trust me, we'll get into the other enemies here in a minute. But what I want you to hear is that that doesn't mean they're not anywhere. In fact, there are a lot of them out there. Let me, let me lay this out for you. Found in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is giving a vision to his disciple John. Now John is writing this down and he speaks about the angels. Look here at the bottom of the verse. It says, you heard the voice of the elders and the many angels and the angels numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now we understand one thing, that demons are fallen angels as we saw last week, but the, the idea was that Satan fell and drug a drug of number with him. But as far as we understand right now, there are myriads of myriads. Now, that means 10,000s of 10,000s. The highest number they could count in the Roman counting system was 10,000. After that, it was like we go 10,000s upon 10,000s. It's just ton, tons and tons and tons of tens of thousands of, of these. Beings. It's uncountable. It's innumerable. There is a lot of them. And in fact, when he begins to say that, we realize later in Revelation, in an image of the fall of Satan and the, and the rebellion of the angels, it says, Satan, who has described this great red dragon, he swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And this is suddenly a picture of at least a third of that myriad upon myriad of angels have found their way into the demonic, or, or have become the demonic horde we face today. Now, I want you to think about it. There's myriads and myriads and myriads of angels. That's a lot of demons. It's enough to cover the planet, enough to deal with humanity, but that doesn't mean they're omnipresent, okay? Demons are not everywhere. They're not in every single home and every single place. They can't exist in every location at the same time. No, Satan is not God. God is the only omnipresent being. He is everywhere at the same time. He's present with all of us. He is in every place in this universe. Demons, not so. They're numbered. There's, they're, they are, and they are outnumbered by the angelic hosts. And we just need to know this because it helps us remember something. Not everything that you encounter in this world is demonic. That is weird. We got this? Because there's a tendency that we can turn all the weird stuff, oh, that's, that's demonic. I'll give you an example. When I was a freshman in high school, um, I was out of my friend's freshman, uh, his, I think it was his uh, 15th or 16th birthday. We were all pumped up, showing up, huge party, lots of us hanging out, all enjoying ourselves. And somebody says, hey, I got a Ouija board. And we're like, oh, that's interesting. And curious young people that we were, we all climbed up into my best friend's room upstairs. Now, a couple of my other friends, they sit down with the Ouija board on the ground. They start touching it. And I'm like, I ain't touching that thing. And I sit up in the corner and I watch what's going on down the bottom. I'm sitting up on the bed and I'm watching these guys. And my friend Mike, he's sitting there with his hands on and they're moving around. It's like, if there's a spirit in the room, tell us your name. And it's like, slides around. It's like, B-O-B. Bob. I'm like, Bob, yeah, that's easy. 
bobs in the room. And literally, and we're just like, okay, that's really funny. And so they're like, oh, you know, you know open the, he wants us to open the window. And they do all this stuff. Like, I'm just sitting there going, this is so stupid. Kind of giggling to myself, watching this whole thing going. And finally, my friend Mike goes, all right, show us a sign that you're here. And suddenly the halogen light right next to me. I mean, it's like sitting right here goes, bing, turns off. The whole room is black. You never saw so many freshmen run in your entire life out of a room. Flooding out of the door. Ah, girls are crying. Guys are hugging. The girls are crying. Going, I know. I always want to hug her. You know, it's like, it's just a mess. Later, we, you know, years later, I'm talking to my friend Mike about it. He's like, oh, I was pushing the thing around the whole time. It was just weird that the thing shut off because halogen lights would overheat. I don't know if you remember those back then in the 90s. They just, boom, they'd turn off because they'd overheat and they have to reset themselves. And it just seemed to happen right at the exact moment. Now, when you step back and you find out my friend's pushing this thing around and that this thing is overheating and, it's, and we had been in there for a while, you go, okay, there's enough plausible explanation to say it's a, it's a coincidence. Now, not everything has to be, therefore, demonic. Does that not mean that the demons weren't messing around the room? No, it doesn't. They may have been. And we were susceptible to what was going on. But there are plenty of illusions and there are plenty of things trained in the practices of illusions that are passed off as demonic or powerful psychic abilities. Cold reading is real. The ability to do illusions is real. And not everything that occurs out there is demonic. Demons are not everywhere. And so we need to be wise and we don't need to mess around with these things because just because we think it's all fake doesn't always mean that it is. In fact, we need to be careful because according to the scriptures, the demonic world has power over the world. Notice how he re John writes this in his letter. He says, we know that we are from God and that the whole world, meaning the sinful humanity, lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this may be stark, and you may not be a Christian today, and this is, will probably feel like an offense to you, but I don't intend it that way. What the scripture is indicating is that if you do not have Christ, you have no defense against the enemy. He can mess with you, he can lie to you, and you'll believe it. He can tempt you, and you'll go for it. There is a reality that you are susceptible to his power, unlike those who are guarded by the resurrected Jesus Christ. And as a warning, it's my job to lay what the scriptures say and what we believe. It is stating that the world around us is under the sway and the power of the evil one. That his rebellion, the flag of I'm going to do it my way, has been planted in the hearts of everyone. And we will follow after his way and be susceptible to his devices. And he has many of them. We'll deal with the devices next week. But I want to just kind of begin to reveal that, hey, we, we don't want to mess with these things. We don't want to mess with Ouija boards. You don't want to mess with the occult. You don't want to mess with magic. You don't want to mess with stuff. Inviting the spiritual reality into your life that you don't have a defense against, you don't understand. Christians, we don't do it because we don't want to. Why does Christ and Satan mix? They don't. We follow Christ. We keep our focus there. But we need to be careful. See, false religions and false doctrines, in fact, the, the, the Bible calls them doctrines of demons, need to be understood. We need to see that they exist because we need to know the truth so that we can hear, oh, that's false. It's a lie. Scripture after scripture after scripture from the Old Testament to the New proclaims this, that the idols that are worshipped in the world are just demonic beings acting like gods. Oh yeah, these beings have power. And these demonic beings act like gods because they want to be worshipped. Just like any person who has pride wants to basically be worshipped by those around them. 
It's the same rebellion. It's just a spiritual rebellion, and that is in existence. We need to know that they're, they're, they're hiding behind these various false gods of false religions. And the scripture has over and over and over stated this. Now, does that mean we should be scared of them? Oh my goodness, there's demons everywhere and they're really powerful. No, they're also limited by God. Demons can't read your mind, for example. They're not sitting there going like, oh, I see what you're all thinking. Only God knows what you're thinking. Nowhere in scripture do we see the demonic can read a mind. Nowhere in scripture do we know that the demon knows what you're thinking. They're, in fact, limited. In a sense, the Bible considers them in chains in some cases and they're limited in their power. We see this especially in the book of Job. Now, Job in this epic poem begins with this introduction in which Job is um, kind of introduced by God in a sense. Satan's, Satan shows up in the court of God and God says, hey, where you been? What you been up to? He's like, I've been roaming around on the earth, looking at the people. And God looks at Satan and says, well, have you considered my, my, my guy Job, man? This guy is righteous. He's good. I mean, he, he, this, there's nobody better than Job. He's like, Yeah. Yeah, you want to know what I think of Job? And this is what he says. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. You've been his possessions have increased in the land. No wonder he likes you. He'll go on to say, Take your hedge away. Let me touch him. Let me hurt him. And we'll see if he curses you or not. When the, while the drama of the book of Job will be laid out, and you can go study that on your own, the point is that God keeps and protects his loved ones. There's a sense that Satan can't touch you if God doesn't want him to. Satan's limited in his abilities and his powers. The, de the demons are limited in their abilities and power. God holds them back. And it's important to note that otherwise we will attribute to the demonic too much power, which they would love to have. They would love to make you think that they are so powerful and so scary that it cripples your life. And that's not the intent here. Don't allow that to overwhelm your thinking. They are limited by the God. They are not little gods. They are no gods. They're angelic beings made by God. God has the power. And they are limited. Finally, though, they are enemies of God. They, they hate God and they hate the church. And this is why I wanted to talk back up and talk to those of you who may not have received Christ yet. Because, look, the way that they keep you in their power and their sway, according to what Paul says to another church filled with the demonic world and dealings with this, was in Corinth. And he says, in the case of those who are apart from Christ, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The demonic hates the gospel. They hate the church. They hate Jesus. You know what they'd love to do, church? They'd love to make the pastor sin so that the world doesn't want to listen to the church anymore. They'd love to make the congregants jerks so that people don't feel comfortable coming to church anymore. They'd love to make us all believe in false doctrine so we have no power with the truth anymore. And so that when somebody comes in, either they feel so comfortable because it's no different than the world they live in outside, or they feel so much like, hey, these people are judging me. They don't want to show up. Or there's no significance. The danger is many Christians have gotten to the place where they've believed the demonic lie that there's no need to get together as a church. That somehow we can be Christians all by ourselves. Man, if I was an enemy, I would love to keep the military individualized. One little guy on that hill, another little guy on that hill, another little guy on that hill, never gathered together into a force to consider the strategy, to consider what God wants to do, and to do it together. Instead, what he does, he keeps us spread apart. You don't really need the church. 
This is all an attempt to keep the gospel away. You see, if you're not a Christian, you, you, you will only then hear what the world says, that we're a bunch of judgmental jerks who want to make you feel guilty about your sin, you evil people, how dare you be self-righteous, whatever. I get it. And here's the thing. We're not here to make you feel guilty. We're not here to, tell you, to make you feel ashamed. I believe that inside we already feel that way. Everyone. I don't know a person who doesn't carry around guilt or shame of some kind in their soul. What the church proclaims is that Jesus Christ wants to take your guilt and take your shame from you and bear it on the cross that you don't have to stand before God with that guilt and with that shame so you can be forgiven and set free from your sin and rebellion. What the church wants to tell you is God has opened the doors to heaven that if you'll just receive what he's done for you, you don't have to add anything to your salvation at all. What the enemy wants you to believe is you've got to be a good person and work hard and make a good living and care about people and be as tolerant as possible and not have any different cultural assumptions so that you don't hurt anybody and, and just go with the flow so that you can be a good person and feel good about yourself. And that is the fastest road to hell. And the danger is that he wants to keep you from hearing that you need forgiveness. He wants to keep you from hearing that that forgiveness is available and that it then love and justice and mercy and truth flows from being right with the one who is loving, the one who is just, the one who is merciful, and the one who is truth, namely the God who created you in his image. He wants to keep you guessing about your identity. He wants to keep you guessing about your purpose. He wants to keep you guessing about your value instead of believing that he has made you valuable so much that he would send his son to die for you. That he'd make you purposeful so much he would intend for you to exist now, keep you existing, and give you a direction for your life and a gift within the church to be used and to care for one another, to give you images of love, to give you a vision for justice, and to send you into a world that desperately needs it. No way. The enemy doesn't want that. That's a glorious battlement against them. And so they'll keep you from the gospel. They'll keep you from God. They'll make you think this is a bunch of silliness. And you will have believed something you've never actually sat down to consider or think about. Why haven't you thought about it? Have you thought about that? And so the enemy hates the gospel. They want to keep us blinded. They want to keep us in their clutches. They want to keep us from God. They want to keep us on their road. Now, that's what the enemy's up to. We'll get into his tactics next week. But before we can jump into the text, you have to remind us, guys, that's not the only enemy. Otherwise, we'll only get fixated on one enemy. If you only get fixated on one part of the warfare, the other parts are going to overwhelm you. There are several other fronts here I want you guys to see about. And it's found right here in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we need to know all of the enemy correctly, all of our enemies rightly. And in Ephesians 2, it lays them out. Let's look at this. If you want to take it in your Bible, flip back a couple pages to Ephesians 2.1. And Paul begins this way. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and that rebellion we talked about last week and your sins in which you all once walked. You all lived this, following this course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There right in this passage classically is laid out what's called the three enemies of the soul. The first is the world. The second in this passage is the devil. And the third is your flesh. You are your own worst enemy, actually. 
We'll get into this in a minute. But I want to start with the first one that he gives you. The world, the flesh, and the devil are all there. And here he starts with the world. He says, following the course of this world. As we laid out, this idea of a course is a racetrack. Round and round and round. It's a set out path for you to run. And you're going to run it over and over and over again. It's a pattern. And there are tons of patterns in our world that you and I follow. We call them patterns of law. Right now, this week has been a memorial and a remembrance of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. A horrific moment in our country's history. And this man is well-known and well-respected and ought to be because of what he did. You see, prior to Martin Luther King Jr.'s stance in the South, segregation was the law. And when there's a law like this, when people run that racetrack, they don't think that it's, it's affecting anything because it's legal and it's okay. The law says it's okay. And so we just blindly run a path. And it took the momentum and the movement that Martin Luther King Jr. brought to break the chains and show not just the individual problems, but the structural sin and oppression of the pattern of the law that had been laid in. And then and only then were we willing to break it. When we saw the injustice, we came to realize what was going on. Now we were able to step back and go, this is wrong, this is evil. And whether that's been completed fully or not is the conversation we need to be having. But the point is, do you see how the law can put us into a pattern that we never even thought we were walking in? Because it's legal. It's fine. It's no big deal. Otherwise, it would have said it was. And patterns of law shape patterns of life. Another pattern that you need to watch out for is patterns of culture. Patterns of culture are the most dominant currently. They can be brought you through the television, through your movies, through all the different things. But patterns of culture are powerful because patterns of culture are unthought about. They just occur. It's like things moved and you moved with them. You didn't realize it, but we all dress way different than in the 80s. And you pull out your pictures of the 80s and you're like, what were we thinking? Look at the size of those shorts. You know, that's like culture moved and we didn't think about it. We just went. Nobody stands back and goes, this is a fad we should not be doing. You know, that kind of thing. Some of the cultural situations happened right under our nose. I think of the definition of marriage as being the prime example currently. I still remember 20 years ago in college having conversations with people. Look, they're going to change marriage. They're going to just, they're going to take this thing and make it something completely different. No, they won't. Who's it going to hurt? It's not like people are going to get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Now, 20 years later, I feel uncomfortable mentioning that I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman to procreate a family for the betterment of a society. Saying that sentence is culturally wrong than to say, if two people love each other, they should get married. That's culturally correct. I feel no fear stating this statement. That's called cultural push, cultural press. Sociologists study it. And when you understand that this is the pattern of the world and we didn't stop to think about the culture, the culture just went along because we met someone and we had a movement and we, had a, we watched this television show and this culture moved us. But we didn't ask the questions. This is what the world does. 
The third pattern is identity. Identity is a fresh issue, but it's always been there. How do you value yourself? What makes you you? Are you valuable because you're beautiful? Are you valuable because you're sexy? No, are you valuable because you make money? Are you valuable because you have popularity? Are you valuable because you have power? Do you have value because, hey, you've got money, you got whatever. There's all of these issues that we declare, this is why I am what I am. And culture will pick out various ones at various times to mold you into its identity. But where are you hearing that you're made in the image of God? You're internally valuable. The question of value was set when you were conceived. You don't earn it, and it's never taken from you. And so value becomes something the world presses upon you as a cultural norm and a shaping of you and a world pattern. And when we get these things, then we need to back up and learn something. There was this weird experiments done called the Milgram experiments. Anybody heard of these things? Milgram experiments were done shortly after World War II. And what's interesting about World War II, the Milgram ex experiments, was there were all these people in the Nuremberg trials trying to claim, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I was just obeying orders. And the question that Milgram asked was, he said, how far can we take somebody when, to do an evil if they're just obeying orders? And so they gathered these people together, and one person was a plant, the other person was actually in the experiment, and the third guy just wore a lab coat. They took the learner, and he went around, who was the plant, and he sat down and got hooked up to this like electric chair kind of thing. And he sat down in that. Meanwhile, the teacher, who was the actual person they were watching, sat down in a chair with all the knobs and one particular knob that said, this is how many volts you're going to shock him with when he gets the answer wrong. We're going to teach him. And the guy in the lab coat stood by and said, okay, ask him a question. Well, he, the guy was getting the questions wrong on purpose. And so he said, okay, now apply the shock. And he would go, oh, okay. And he'd turn it up. Ah! Okay, every time he gets it wrong, you need to increase it that, or the experiment's not going to work. 70% of the population was willing to go to 440 volts, which was death. Because the authority told me to. I was just obeying the guy in the lab coat. These experiments have been done over and over and over again to show that we have been hardwired to obey authority. We've been hardwired to obey one who is greater than us. Hmm, wonder where that came from. And yet there's a danger in all of this because there is a second enemy and that second enemy is down here. It's called the, lived by the passions of our flesh. This flesh is a powerful enemy. You see, it's, it's welded into this whole system. It's the rebellion itself that dwells within us. And so we run after its passions and its longings. And yet Jeremiah, who stated this very clearly, the heart, the human heart, not like the actual physical muscle. We're talking about the center of your will is how they understood the word heart in the ancient days. Your brain, you thought of stuff. The heart moved you to action. Well, that heart is deceitful above all things. That means you and I are more capable of the evilest deceit than the devils themselves. The difference is we die, they don't. But left to our own devices, we can become the worst things that you've ever seen. And so we are, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So sick, in fact, we don't need devils to tempt us, guys. James puts it this way. He says, each person is tempted and lured when enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. The majority of the things that you and I do is tempting ourselves, giving in to our own longings and wants that are evil. Oh, I want that. <laughs> and yet, what are we taught in our culture and society? Just follow your heart. When you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. 
We're trained at a young age to follow our hearts. You could never go wrong. Know who you are and be that. What comes out of the heart? Jesus says this. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That's where it comes from. This is the commentary that they're giving on Jesus' words. The heart is deceitful. It's scary. It's on the side of the devils, and the devils don't have to do much but give a little push, and off we go. Following the patterns of our world, following the longings of our flesh, and off we go. Now, here's the scariest thing to me, guys. The devils work through temptation. That's one thing. We get that. They'll tempt you with something, and we may fall into it and grab it. The more dangerous one are the lies. All they have to do is give you a lie, and you may not have the distinguishability of what is your thoughts or somebody else's. This is the danger if you don't have Christ. How can you tell when you're thinking and when a demonic being is giving you a lie? And then if all we do is trust our hearts and trust our instincts, how are you going to stop yourself from doing evil if, according to the Milgram experiment, we will go with our authorities? And by the way, the current authority of all life is you. Follow yourself and the demons will have a heyday. They can lie to you and tempt you all the way down until you obey yourself to destruction. This is why we need to know the battle. This is why we need to know these things exist. Because there's a complex war happening for your soul to keep you from the gospel, to bind your life and destroy it in lies and untruths. And they'll be happy for you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise and go to hell. They don't much care about how you feel today as much as how you'll feel for the rest of eternity. And so we see this problem. So, and this is frightening, but the question really is, so what? Why why go through this, Greg? I mean, I get it. I get the war. I get the thoughts. Well, let's start here. I'm going to give you a couple of applications. Number one, monitor your thoughts. Monitor your heart. What are you thinking? What's going on inside of you? Are you aware of it? Are you stepping back going, that wasn't my thought? Or, wow, that was really cultural. I should think about this. Wow, this is an emotional thing for me. I don't think I can think through this clearly. I need other people. You know, that's what church is about, to help each other out, to have conversations, not to show up, go to church, and go home. It's here so we can engage one another, consider thoughts with each other, talk about our struggles with each other. Small groups are engaged so you can have those more intimate, longer time periods for that. But this is what's going on. We need to monitor our hearts and thoughts because guess what? It's affecting us. James, when he starts, you can read it in the chapter 3, he talks about what's going on with anger and what's going on with this, this violence that comes from humanity. And he says this, this is not, this fighting, this, this ambition and, vain, and van, vanity and jealousy, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. What? Say it. What? We don't battle flesh and blood. You know why I wonder what I see on Facebook isn't demonic? Because it's the attitude of demonic. To yell and scream, to point fingers, to shout, to cuss, to cut down, and to not listen is not spiritual. It's demonic. And the frightening thing about this is that it brings about jealousy. How often do we do what we do out of jealousy or selfish ambition? We want to do this. This is our way. You're wrong. Disorder and vile practices follow in every form. No, we need to monitor our thoughts. We need to monitor our Facebook feeds. We need to monitor ourselves. 
Because how easily are we being duped by the very vile practices that they long for us to divide ourselves over? The next one is, though, I don't want you to fear. Don't fear the demonic. You have no, if you're a Christian, you have no need to fear the demonic. You see, it states this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ has disarmed the demons. They can tempt you and you can sin. You can be forgiven. Now, there's going to be struggle. We'll talk about that next week. And there can be things that they do to us, but they cannot ultimately send you to hell. And they cannot ultimately win or have victory. And they cannot ultimately take you over. This is Christ who dwells in you. His spirit lives in you and he is greater than anything that this world can throw at you. So don't fear. Don't go home going like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, no, no, no. Doesn't mean we go mess around with stuff either. We don't need to. Focus on Christ. He transforms you. He defends you. He is your victory. As I'll show you right here, that we need to live with Christ and his teachings. Notice what Jesus says in the last night of his life before he goes to the cross. He turns to his disciples, or actually he tells them this before that day. Actually, I forget. He gets way into this in 14. But if he says, if you abide in my word, you will truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How often do we hear that slogan right now? The truth will set you free. Where does that come from? It comes from Jesus. Jesus said, you abide in my word. And you will be truly my followers and you will know the truth and that truth will set you free. You see, what's going on is you can't believe the lies of the demons when you know the truth. And you won't walk into the temptation when you live the truth. And when you share the truth, you're standing in a way of freeing other people. And it does free people. And that's the last thing they want you to do is they want you to get engaged in setting people free. They don't want you to love Christ. They don't want you to live for Christ. They don't want you to share Christ. Maybe some of you thought, oh, I do a Bible study here and there. It's just something I do. Oh, I come to church because, you know, I kind of have to. Why do we go to church? Why be in a small group? Why serve and use your gift? Why read the Bible? Why pray? Why worship? Except that is how we do warfare. It is how we actually be free. Because the lies and the temptations and all of this stuff is minimized when we're not isolated, is minimized when we're in the word of God, and is minimized when we're encouraging each other as the army of God marching forth, not against humanity, but against the spiritual forces of this age. And all we're doing is proclaiming a victory already won through Jesus Christ. Don't fear. You have all that you need to walk in Christ. But yes, yes, this is a war. Let's live it rightly. Let's do it rightly. And we'll get into these tactics next week and see a little bit more details there. But let's, let's get this locked in this way. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, I want to I start with this. You, you may be here today and you may not be a Christian right now. You may right now realize that you are vulnerable to the demonic attacks of this world. And I want to tell you right now, you don't have to ignore the message that Jesus is giving, that he has died for your sins, that he rose from the dead to give you life and to protect you and to set you free from those lies. And in fact, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to become good and all perfect and everything. Nope, what he wants to do is he wants to work with you after you've received this gift. You see, what he does is he takes all your sin, all your shame and all your evil, and he gives you all his good, all his perfection, and a relationship with God. All you have to do is be willing to make the exchange. And if you're willing to make that exchange today, 
I want to give you a chance to do that right now. If you'll do this with me, just start with a prayer. Just talk to God and say, God, I, I know that I've been in rebellion against you. And I hear, hear and I trust that Jesus has taken my sins. He's taken my guilt. He's taken my shame. I trust that he rose from the dead to give me life. And I ask that you'd come into my life and lead me now and protect me and give me your truth. You may be in here right now working through that kind of a prayer. We may be praying what I just said. Would you do me a favor? Right where you are, would you just say, hey, that's me, I'm, I'm doing that by putting your hand up? We have a team that would like to get you a card of information right now. So don't feel embarrassed. They'll raise their hand so you can see and connect with them right now. So if you're there, just put your hand up and say, that's me. Sign up so they can see you, and we can connect with you. Otherwise, Lord, just bless this, this church. I ask that you'd help us. Bless our brothers and sisters in all the churches, that we may be in your word, that we may be faithful to be together, that we may teach each other, encourage each other, as long as there is time to do so, with your word and with your truth. And so, God, thank you, thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus that he has borne our sins, he's disarmed the enemy, and he's risen from the dead to give us life. And we thank you for that opportunity to proclaim that this week. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.